From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Brian Mullady is in the house. Pick up the phone and give us a call. The number is 833-288-EWTN. With any of your questions for Father Mullady, the number 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 1- 205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Thursday, the aforementioned Father Brian Mullady. How are you? Okay. Nice to talk to you. And um, you're going to wade into the synodal pool today. Yes. Well, it's kind of fitting today because today is the feast of the dedication of St. John Lateran, which is actually the Pope's Cathedral. Uh, I know St. Peter's is, has eclipsed this as a major church because it's the tomb of the apostle. But St. John Lateran was basically given to the church by Constantine, and it's where the Bishop of Rome took up his chair, if you want to put it that way, or his cathedral, or his origin of authority. And I've just been recently reading a book that I do recommend to you, called Vatican Confidential by Cardinal Müller. And as you know, he was the head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith up until about five years ago or six years ago. And in this book, he himself reflects on the whole synodal process and what happened there, uh, and also the state of the church in an interview, again, with an Italian German journalist, Now, what I find most interesting about this book is by its characterization of what is happening in our church today. First of all, he says that there's very little that the bishops know about theology. And I think I would concur with that. We're not known at the moment for choosing our bishops based on their theological learning. And in fact, the Holy See is coming out with a document soon where the Pope laments the fact that theology for him is too cerebral, it's too abstract, it's done in a desk by study. He thinks theology should be more practical, more uh, basically generated by the situation that you're in 
and also much more cultural, if you want to put it that way. Now, how that's applied, that's another story. And now he thinks it should be applied is another story. But in the book, talking about something like woman's ordination, they ask him about this, the journalist. And the journal, uh, the cardinal characterizes this present state of the church as the successor of the Enlightenment, in which there was no absolute truth, in which subjectivity or feelings basically produce the truth. And then he says this, from a theological point of view, however, the priesthood is not considered. Otherwise, we end up not understanding that the church is much, much more than a state. It is a mirror of the divine. It is misleading, therefore, to think of introducing different criteria as if it were a business, a corporation, because it would have nothing to do with the perspective of salvation in Christ. It is obvious that for public opinion, it's easier to accept the church as a social organization than as an instrument of salvation. Here we see the difficulty in understanding that it is not possible to erase the church's transcendent spiritual character. The secular current will always struggle to accept the sacred aspect of the church linked to life after death. And he applies this, for example, to the German synodal process and all that. The idea that somehow we're a corporation where various factions are competing for control and that the priesthood, in a way, and maybe even the episcopacy and the papacy are forums in which such a struggle takes place is very endemic to the synodal process as it's represented now. Now, the problem is that <laughs> we're not a corporation of thoroughly nasty business corporation with various factions competing for power. For one thing, sacramental orders is not a matter of power in the sense that you exercise power over others for the sake of your agenda, whatever it may be. It is a matter of power, but it's a power to be used for others to serve them better. And central to this is something like theology. And theology can't be non-intellectual. If it is, it becomes totally subjective. And you can't even have a creedal statement. I remember back in the late, early 70s, I was asked by a class to play a modernist to them, to role play a modernist. And so I started and they got all frustrated and upset and they said, but the Council of Nicaea said this and I said, well, that was fine for 325, but we don't live in 325 now. We live in the 20th century and we come of age now. So therefore we have to change all those categories they used, like person and nature, et cetera, about Christ from the way they were expressing things in 325 to what relates to our culture now. Well, by the time I was done, they were so angry, all of them, and I didn't believe this. You know, I was just role-playing. And I said, you know, all you have to do is accept the relativity of truth 
and you're in. Now, there could be a very beneficial citadel process, which basically is consultative, where, for example, the Pope consults various local authorities so that the church can develop a, a true practical response to a situation. When Pius XII uh, wrote, or Pius XI wrote Bernhard Sorge, responding to Hitler, he consulted all the German bishops and all the people in Germany about what their opinion was of what was going on before he did it. And yet we have approached a much larger problem of the church in China, and we refuse to consult anybody except the government with whom we're having the problem. And even the poor old cardinal in Hong Kong, who is right there, you know, he's on the site, they don't want to listen to him. They don't want to hear what he has to say. Now, that's not true dialogue, nor is it truly a synodal process. So, uh, also, synods have to be composed of bishops. They can't, just, they can't include lay people voting on documents, much less than Catholics, which some people would like to have also. We're not trying to develop a world council of churches here because well, we, we don't have a world council of churches. We have one true church which in its sense of the faithful goes back in one great unity to the apostolic college actually in Christ's time. So it's interesting reading Cardinal Muller's book. I highly recommend it to you to see someone who is wrestling with these questions and at one time had quite a bit to do with them, now does not because he's not head of the Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith anymore and he sort of is just sort of in limbo over in the Vatican, but who has a realistic appreciation of the problems because he actually experienced uh, them on a day-to-day -day basis. And in his case, we talk all about dialogue and consultation, and yet the Pope told him one night how wonderful he was. The next day, the Cardinal came to the Vatican to do business, and he said, by the way, your services are no longer required. And so he <laughs> was gone. 833-288-EWTN. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Pick up the phone and grab one of these open phone lines. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. 
Got a new book from EWTN Publishing for November, Rejoicing in Our Hope, Meditations for the Advent and Christmas Seasons by Bishop Robert J. Baker. Bishop Baker shares stories and reflections on sacred scripture, the saints, popes, and other famous individuals that provide hope and inspiration for Advent and Christmas seasons. These brief power-packed meditations include penetrating daily questions for reflection and action. They also offer a prayer for each day when you're lighting your Advent wreath or Christmas candle. Uh, Through Bishop Baker's inspiring words of wisdom, you will receive time-tested ways of fruitfully preparing for Advent. You'll also learn the prescription for keep to keep going and the secret to finding joy, the words that have the power to lead you to Christ's mercy, and much, much more. Rejoicing in Our Hope, Meditations for the Advent and Christmas Seasons by Bishop Robert J. Baker, available at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Nathan writes in, if God is eternal, then how does he view time? How did Jesus not have a body and then suddenly have a body? Okay, well, the second part is easier to answer than the first. Um, Christ's body is in time, obviously, but not his person, So, um, except through his body. So the traditional problem is the idea of relationship. If creation is altered in Christ, why isn't God altered in Christ? And the reason is because there's what we call a real relation in creation between God and the world. The world would depend upon God to come into being. But from the world's point of view toward God, the, um, there is only an ideal relation. We conceive it that way because it's the only way we can conceive it in our mind. So the relation of Christ to the second person of the Trinity changes creation. It, it makes it a whole new thing. But it doesn't change God. God remains eternal in what he is. Regarding the speckened, well, it's hard to characterize this, but God is equally as present to the beginning of the process as to the end of the process when it comes to the whole order of all the ages. And that's constantly taught by both Judaism and Christianity. So you have to look on the thing as God not being in the process except by way of causality. In other words, he isn't altered by the process, but the process is altered by him. And this is the difference between uh, the way God looks at the world and the way we do. We see it as successive moments. God sees the whole thing at once. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. Plenty of open phone lines for you and all kinds of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. John is up first today. He's in Portage, Michigan, listening on Holy Family Radio. John, you're on with Father Milady. Father, good. Thanks uh, Thanks for being here answering these phone calls and these questions. question that I have is, 
who exactly is sinning when it comes down to the public endorsing and voting for these proposals? The other day they had this proposal in Ohio. Right. Last year they had one in Michigan. Right. I, if you vote for this thing, are you not sinning? Well, I, I, I would not call the vote itself a sin. Uh, what you're voting for is obviously a sin. But there are many reasons why people vote for things. And so we have to, well, first of all, we should be glad, not that it didn't pass, but we should be glad that at least it's been removed from the Supreme Court now where nine people basically decide the morality of a country. Now every state, some have not approved abortion, some have, every state has the ability to debate it, and it's much better for it to be debated on a more local level than on a, a country, a national level. Um, regarding the sin, though, the sin is on the part of whoever basically sponsored the legislation, the reason they want it to be what it is, and then the people who should at least speak out by saying it is a sin and don't. So, and every situation is a little different, huh, Father? I've been I've been right. led to believe that this particular. Um, constitutional amendment in the state of Ohio was worded in an absurdly vague fashion. Sure, that some people could have been could have really been fooled into voting for it. Quite frankly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. God yeah, bless it, you. Oh, go ahead. It, it, it sort of reflects the the line in Man for All Seasons where they send the act through Parliament, which requires the oath that the king's marriage is uh, is valid to Anne Boleyn. And his daughter tells Thomas more of this, and he says, what are the words of the oath? And she said, well, what, is, what does it matter what the words say? We know what it means. He said, look, an oath is made up of words, and God made us to serve him in his our minds. And uh, if I can possibly take this oath, I will. And if I do, you must take it too. Oh, no, no, no. He says, it's not a matter of symbolism. It's a matter of legality. And then I love the line, our natural business lies in escaping. Because <laughs> <laughs> in the modern world, I've often felt that, our natural business <laughs> lies in escaping. But, uh, yeah, um, you have to look at the what's behind the whole thing, too. But, um, of course, the person may themselves be committing a sin by callously voting to kill children. Most Americans aren't like that, though. They voted. Uh, I was my talk show the other day was saying, you know, it's just they just hadn't used the word ban. A lot of people might have been a lot more in favor, and then there both of these people are Republicans, and they said, and most places, if you uh, forbid all abortion including rape and incest, you're not going to pass. That's just the political reality. 833-288-EWTN is our 
toll-free number. Next up is Nancy, a first-time caller in Silver Spring, Maryland, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Nancy, you're on with Father Milady. Hi, Father. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Great. So my question is, I'm, I'm actually taking this Catholic course in my area, and the speaker asserted that there could be situations where the grace of the sacrament of confirmation is not conferred. And I just wondered, are there any circumstances where that might happen? He gave you no example? No, no. It wasn't a, um, like, emphatic uh, statement. It was just the possibility of well, the fact I suppose that the uh... grace may, may not be conferred. So I just wondered, I, I guess I assumed if you stand ready to receive, you've prepared, and you come to the sacrament, that the grace would always be conferred. Well, grace is always, in fact, conferred by the sacraments, but it may not be conferred on the recipient. For example, if you come to get the grace of baptism and you don't want to be baptized and don't intend to be baptized, God gives grace, but he gives it to some other person. Um, regarding confirmation, I, I, the only thing I can think of is that uh, you just don't want to be confirmed. You know, there are people that go through confirmation like the Jews go through the bar mitzvah. You know, it's a nice party. <laughs> and some they may not even agree with the faith. Well, I guess you could use the idea that even if they don't agree with the faith, if they don't disagree with the faith, they can skip the grace. But there may be some people who actively go through the thing just because their parents made them, and they don't agree with it at all. They don't believe in it. In such a case, I would imagine the grace wouldn't be conferred on them, but it might be conferred on uh, someone else who needs it. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Emma wants to know if there's a difference between redemption and salvation. Uh, well, yes, you could say there is, because before the sin, we needed grace for salvation, but not for redemption, because there's nothing we need to be redeemed from. After the sin, we need to be redeemed from the sin, too. So, so redemption in, salvation involves redemption, then. And Taylor wants to know how God knows everything. Well, God knows everything in one act. Because uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and without him was nothing made that has been made. So God's self-knowledge is the Word, the second person of the Trinity. And in knowing that, he knows everything in one great eternal act. Eight three three two eight. Go ahead, Father. Well, he doesn't abstract it like we do from constant experience, nor does he have it revealed to him. He is truth, and therefore, 
anything that is truth or contrary to the truth, he knows in one great act of creation because he's the origin of the truth. 833-288-EWTN. We've got open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. If you'd like to send us an email, we'd love to receive that as well. Simply send it to openline at EWTN.com and put EWTN Thursday, uh, Open Line Thursday or Father Milady, uh in the subject line and we'll get it to the appropriate location. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833 833- 2883986. We head back to the phones. Robin is a first time caller in the great state of Illinois, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Robin, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, good afternoon. Afternoon. My husband is a cradle Catholic. I'm a convert. We've been married for over 40 years. Um, He is fully convinced that the Eucharist is a symbol of the body and blood of Christ. I am in complete disagreement with that. Um, what say you? You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not supposed to take sides like that totally, but no, it's it's much more than a symbolic presence, yeah. Um, your husband didn't go to Catholic school by any chance, Jesuits high school or something back in no, the we 60s. Had, we had a, yeah, he was raised up in the 60s and the 70s, and it was, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay. Uh, right. <laughs> and that's what led them to do things like make the presence of Christ symbolic. No, that's what we mean by real presence. It's not symbolic. Even Luther thought it was more than symbolic, you know. That's all a modern opinion. It is a Protestant opinion. Uh, Zwingli, the the reformers from Switzerland, held that. But Luther didn't, and certainly Henry VIII didn't either at the time. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Elijah is another first-time caller right here in Birmingham listening on Guadalupe Radio. Elijah, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father. How are you? Good. Hi. Uh, so I'm just curious, uh, with regard to receiving an, an indulgence, how can I be sure that I don't have an attachment to sin or I'm meeting the requirements? Oh, yeah, the famous, I... <laughs> the famous attachment to sin problem. <laughs> yeah. um, look, what they're trying to emphasize with that is that indulgences aren't automatic. There were some people that, even in Luther's time, remember they preached an indulgence to get the money to build St. Peter's Cathedral, uh, Basilica, and uh, these people would come and tell, supposedly, at least according to Protestant lore, 
would tell Luther that the Catholic priests told them that they were freed from all their sins, even their future ones. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, you were dealing with unlettered people. And so even if someone did give a theological nuance, they wouldn't necessarily have understood it. So basically the attachment to sin would be a person who comes to get the indulgence but then thinks they can keep on doing what they're doing as far as, not, I don't mean by weakness, I mean by conviction, uh, even though it uh, wars against what the indulgence is about. So you, have, you can say you're trying to overcome your attachment to sin and doing the best you can but these people would say, well, it doesn't really matter because I have an indulgence. Um, you know, I kissed the tears of the Madonna, so therefore I don't have to worry because I was promised I'd never go to hell. Well, I, it doesn't quite work that way. It isn't like magic. You have to uh, do some things, too. Uh, if you're going to get rights, you have to have some duties and some responsibilities. And one of them is to strive against committing sin. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. That's the number Pierre used, a first-time caller in New Orleans, Louisiana. Listening on Catholic Community Radio. Pierre, you're on with Father Brian Milady. First of all, thank you, Father, for being available to us. I was interested in knowing, uh, getting your opinion on what is the history of the diaconate in the early Church? Were deacons uh, ordained before priesthood came along? Uh, and what was the, if there was a rift between deacons and priests, what silence uh, and ended the academic until Vatican II. Do you know the historical some, backdrop of that? Some, yes. The origin of the diaconate is, of course, in the Acts of the Apostles. Because remember, St. Stephen and the Seven were brought forward because the responsibilities of the ministry had become so great for the apostles because the church got larger and larger and larger. So they made, uh, they discerned and instituted, because only Christ can institute a sacrament, they established these helpers for the apostles, and these are the deacons. They apparently also had a liturgical function, the males, though there were people they called deaconesses in the New Testament these were females, and they had no liturgical function as such. They were pretty much people who dressed and undressed the Christian women on their way to baptism. Because remember, they used to change their garment to white garments and stuff. And uh, they also participated in works of charity. The deacons also had responsibility for the temporalities of the church, the money, so that the priests would be left free 
to apostles to preach the gospel. The uh, permanent diaconate, in the sense uh, we have it now, um, was something of a later creation. And it basically occurred when it wasn't recognized that we needed to have all these extra helpers. I don't know much about strife between them. I never heard there was any strife. Being clerics, though, I imagine there was some. There's always strife about clerics of some kind. Uh, but it wasn't a, a bad thing. They did preserve the diaconate, but they did it as a step to orders. And um, so uh, I received diaconate, and then I received priests, so I can do both what is characteristic of a deacon at the Mass and a priest, even in the former liturgy. Subdeacon was instituted by the church, and a subdeacon, anybody can be instituted or made a subdeacon now to participate in the old, the uh, former liturgy uh, and do its functions there. And then the minor orders, so to speak, were orders that people could participate in and sometimes did, if they were monks or whatever, uh, which, but, and that was to admit them to the clerical state. But when you actually got admitted to the clerical state, was soon you received tonsure, which we still get, but we don't do the crown, you know, the shaved head. That was the characteristic of the monks. And now they just, even with us, they just clip a little piece of hair from, I think, in the form of a cross on your head. But the point is that the diaconate was a helping ministry to promoting the ministry of the priest. And it did not originally have people who were permanent deacons although some of the people evangelizing people in the early church were lifetime deacons almost. But eventually, especially in the Western church, this fell out of use. It's more common in the Eastern church. But then numbers of clergy are difficult in the Eastern church because in places like Ukraine, they just didn't have any seminaries or schools for many centuries, and still they had churches and priests that had to administer them, and they didn't have a lot of clergy. So the deacons helped with that also. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Angela's up next. She's a first-time caller in Houston, Texas, listening on Guadalupe, or excuse me, Sirius XM Channel 130. Angela, you're on with Father Milady. Hi, good afternoon, Father. Thank you for taking my call. So um, I just wanted to um, ask you, this morning I read in online about how Pope Francis is going to allow uh, the transgender community, you know, to be baptized, but um, also to serve as godparents. Um, that was a little bit concerning to me. 
and it really hurt me. So I just wanted to know if you could provide some sort of um, consolement. Well, baptism is something they've always been able to do. This is an attempt by the news media to generate a controversy, which isn't controversial. Uh, regarding uh, godparents, that's a bit more difficult uh, because the godparents are supposed to instruct the godchildren in the faith and be models of it. Although, given what it's become today, you know, for one thing, you have to only have to have one Catholic as a godparent. You can have people who aren't even Christian as godparents otherwise. And I noticed that they added uh, um, witnessing a marriage. Well, anybody can witness a marriage. The important thing is that you're present when the vows are made and to test of the fact that they were made. So the moral nature would only be a problem for godparents. And um, again, a lot of it's what godparent has become now, which is not very godly. <laughs> for the most part. It's like your friends, your honorary friends or something like that. It should be, uh, and it's, and it's understood to be, but unfortunately, in fact, it has not been very well understood for a long, long time. Thanks, Angela. We appreciate the call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Mary is another first-time caller in the great state of Missouri, listening on the EWTN app. Mary, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, sure. Well, <laughs> the previous caller just uh, pretty much identified the question I was going to ask you about also about the tra transgender uh, people being baptized. And um, so I'm going to go to a more general question uh, because um, I, I'm a cradle Catholic and I am 75 years old. And um, I fear today that um, our church may be, um, I don't know, uh, changing maybe somewhat, um, I fear that, um, due to our culture. And I guess, you know, I that is something that I don't understand. How, how does the Church, if it does, how does it change to um, with culture? Um, because from what I understand, anyway, all these years, um, it's always pretty much then I think the the same. Um, if you could help me with that and maybe ease some anxiety I might have about that, I would really appreciate it. Okay, first of all, your fears are well-founded, but these fears should go all the way back to the 60s. Uh, I know we lived in a period of time where we were fortunate enough to have two popes that were very countercultural, uh, John Paul II and Benedict XVI. But I recall as a young, because I'm almost, I'm the same age almost as you are, when I entered in 66, and when 68 rolled around, it was like two different worlds. The world fell off the end, and it has never recovered. 
and a part of it was an attempt by the church to give in to the culture. And the very first sign of that was this strong movement on the part of ecclesiastics to get rid of humani for birth control, which Paul VI resisted. And I remember in 1978 or 9, I can't remember which year, uh, I was astonished when they elected John Paul II because I thought it would just keep going the way it's gone, and it didn't. So we were very fortunate for many years. However, the movement underneath in many of the lower parts of the church, especially parts having to do with academia, like theology schools, and that includes the theology schools in Rome, um, it, they were, for the most part, not all, but for the most part, loaded with people who disagreed with this and were just waiting to be unleashed. And finally, when Benedict resigned, they were unleashed on the world again. And we see the, well, I felt like I was living in the 70s again, that we just uh, jumped a, a chasm. So your fears are very well founded. Regarding changes in the church, there are two ways you could look on change. And this is a traditional doctrine. Changes can be homogenous or heterogeneous. A homogenous change is one that develops something we already believe so that we believe it more strongly or more deeply, but we don't change it. Heterogeneous change is where you look on the present as changing the past and usually determined by the culture, not by intellectual life pretty much, but, but by the culture. The church does not agree with heterogeneous change. You can't make six sacraments five now, or one, or ten. Uh, but regarding homogenous change, we do look up on this as possible, and in some cases desirable, because obviously time and cultures present us with different challenges as to what our truth is. So the gospel, for example, was preached in the Mediterranean world in the first century. But when it was adapted later to the Middle Ages or to the 18th century, it had a whole host of new problems that had to be addressed. Or we didn't have a church that was international before that included Africans and Asians and, uh, you know, Latin Americans and that sort of thing that perhaps have a different cu cultural experience that needs to be added to. The thing to avoid is what some people have been trying to do with the synod, which is look upon a controversy, for example, that occurred in the 16th century when the Jesuits and Dominicans went to China, because in China, in those times at least, I don't know about today, for uh, funerals you wore white, and for celebrations you wore black. Well, the Dominicans insisted on preserving the liturgical tradition of the Roman Missal, 
in the face of that culture. So you were white for joy and black for sorrow. But the Jesuits said, well, look, since we were in a different culture, if black means joy here, that's what we have to use. And if white means sorrow, that's what we have to use. So they had a long argument and discussion about something which is as seemingly trivial as that. But if you change it, you can't change it to something that's totally different than what existed before. What you need to do is make clear what totally existed before, perhaps through a new form of expression. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Be sure to join us for Stories from the Heart Sunday morning at 9.15 a.m. Eastern Time with Sandra McDevitt right here on EWTN Radio. Donna's up next. She is in Columbus, Ohio, listening to EWTN on St. Gabriel Radio. Donna, you're on with Father Brian Malady. Hi. Thank you for taking my call, Father. I just have a quick question. My daughter was raised Catholic all through high school, um, cradle Catholic, and we sent her to a Catholic college, and now she says everything's a hoax. Some girl got pregnant, and her parents made this story up because they're Jewish and wanted to not have her stoned. And then her comment when I said, well, people don't die, you know, for nothing, was, well, you know, they can talk them into taking Kool-Aid like Jim Jones or, you know, you can talk people into doing anything if you've got enough charism. So I wanted to know if you can recommend or something to recommend to get her mindset back to reality. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, I appreciate the question. Um, I don't know of any particular book that's about that. I'm sure there must be some books about cults, but I don't think that's what you're asking me about. I think what you're asking about is just what we've been talking about, which is this change from the culture. And unfortunately, the best way to ensure that your children will lose the faith is to send them to a Catholic school. (laughs) People spend all this money because they want their children, especially in college and universities, which cost a fortune now, educated in the faith. And they, they go there and then they wind up losing the faith. There are very high-powered Catholic colleges that still teach the faith, although I don't know if that would be uh, indicated in your case, either financially or, or other reasons. But I will recommend to you University of Dallas, Benedictine College in Kansas, Thomas Aquinas College, Christendom College, uh, what used to be called Magdalene College, whose name escapes me at the moment, and Ave Maria University. I mean, there are a bunch of them. I'm sure I'm omitting one or two. University of Mary. University of Mary up in um, uh, Bismarck. and uh, John Paul II in San Diego. Uh, yeah, but that's really more a theater college. It's not a, it wasn't a full-blown college originally. But yes, they, they evidently try to teach the faith. But um, you can find them if you just look for them. 
Now, I assume, though, that your daughter's kind of gone already. So you want to try to get her back into reality. Well, I, I think, first of all, that my experience of uh, people in college is that they have to show their independence by rejecting their parents' values for the most part. Not everybody, but for the most part. And they don't have to pay taxes or anything yet or worry about running a family. So just give her a chance once she gets out into the real hard, cruel world when she has to support herself or to pay taxes or to run a family or to be married. And she'll come back eventually. And quickly, we'll head to Ben in North Carolina watching us today on YouTube. Um, ben, just a couple minutes left with Father Milady. Oh. Yeah, Father Milady, I, I, I'm lost on that question somebody asked you before about whether it's a sin to vote for somebody who's pro-abortion. Um, and you, you said that it's not a sin. And maybe I heard you wrong, but to me that's a pretty bad sin when you're voting to kill little babies. When you're voting to kill old babies, it is a bad sin. But there are some people that vote for people who allow, you know, still allow abortion for other reasons, and uh, they just ignore the fact that it involves their their positions involve um, killing little babies. I mean, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. But uh, politics is we we don't exalt any particular political position or uh, politician, I should say, personally. So um, everybody's got something about their program that isn't perfect. So, yeah, thank you, Ben. We appreciate the call today, uh, Father. Would you leave us with a blessing? May I bless you, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend on you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to Open Line Thursday. Back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together then, God bless.